Hey, what's up, everybody? Sean Eaton here. Welcome to this episode of the Tips and Quick Podcast, your place for quick tips about pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport medicine. In this episode, I'm going to be going over shock index and the modified shock index. We're going to be talking about how we can apply this to our clinical practice to raise our pre-hospital index of suspicion for patients who have suffered traumatic injuries. So for many years, EMS providers have relied heavily on certain clinical signs and symptoms to predict clinical instability in trauma patients and the need for emergent transport for definitive surgical care. Commonly, EMS providers have used heart rates greater than 120, systolic blood pressures less than 90, or MAPS less than 60 as a benchmark for clinically unstable patients. However, these indicators can be misleading if not carefully evaluated in the context of a patient's overall clinical presentation. This can lead EMS providers to underestimate the severity of our patient's injuries or illness. So in this episode, I want to go over two tools that you can use to help you evaluate whether a patient is clinically stable or unstable. The first one I want to talk about is the shock index, and the shock index first showed up in the literature in the late 60s and early 70s as a marker for unstable patients who were either hypovolemic or experiencing acute myocardial infarctions or AMIs. The way the shock index works is this. You take the patient's heart rate and you divide that by their systolic blood pressure. Okay, A normal shock index would be somewhere between 0.5 and 0.7. Okay, if you come over to the show notes, I've got some examples here, but the one I want to walk you through is consider you have a patient with a systolic blood pressure of 100, a diastolic blood pressure of 70, so their blood pressure is 100 over 70, which gives them a MAP of 85, and they got a heart rate of 60. If you do the math, this gives you a shock index of 0.6, totally within the normal range. Now let's take a patient with the same blood pressure, 100 over 70, same MAP, 85, but now they have a heart rate of 115. Is that patient sick or not sick? Imagine this is your trauma patient. Systolic blood pressure of 100 and a diastolic blood pressure of 70 is not too bad. We know that a MAP of 85 should be enough in order to perfuse our vital organs. Great. So do we run this patient in hot? Do we call a trauma activation? A heart rate of 115 is not so bad. But if you apply these numbers to the shock index, we can see that that gives us a shock index of 1.15. Now, if you look at the literature, it basically says that a shock index greater than 0.7 gives you an approximate accuracy for predicting badness of greater than 75%. A shock index of 0.9 is typically what's used in many of the studies in order to create a cut point for identifying critical patients. I did find one other study that actually broke it down and said a shock index greater than one had a sensitivity of 68 and a specificity of 81 for predicting the need for ER massive transfusion protocol. Okay, The take-home point here is that the higher the shock index score, the better it is at predicting the need for more aggressive resuscitation. Now, the problem I see with this is that these independent factors, heart rate and systolic blood pressure, they're not great in the pre-hospital or transport environment. They're subject to a number of significant fluctuations independent of the patient's hemodynamic status, things like applying the wrong blood pressure cuff size or having an inexperienced provider taking your blood pressures. Uh, It could be temperatures, the patient's shivering, maybe they're vasoconstricted, maybe they've got pain and that's causing the heart rate to be increased. 
Perhaps the monitor is picking up vibrations from your ambulance or from your helicopter. So we need to take this shock index and apply that to our other clinical assessment, our other clinical findings when evaluating these patients. Now, there is some ongoing efforts to find a better objective indicator for predicting outcomes and the need for aggressive resuscitation. Here's the take-home point for shock index. Remember, the heart rate should always be less than the systolic blood pressure. If the systolic blood pressure is less than or equal to the heart rate, then you know you have a shock index of at least 1.0, and that's a good indicator that the patient is heading towards significant clinical instability. At some point along the way, somebody looked at the shock index and they said, how can we make this better? How can we make this more sensitive? And they came up with the modified shock index. And the modified shock index is nothing more than the heart rate divided by the map. Remember, we know that trending maps gives us a better clinical picture of our patient's status rather than just looking at systolic blood pressure. We know that it's a map that gives us a better indication of total organ perfusion. Okay, So with the modified shock index, they say if the modified shock index score is less than 0.7 or greater than 1.3, this indicates greater mortality. So this is a little bit more complicated uh, tool to use, but in a number of studies, it's been shown statistically more sensitive at predicting worse outcomes or a patient's need for massive transfusion than the shock index alone. So Let's use our same example, okay? You have a patient with a systolic blood pressure of 100 over a diastolic blood pressure of 70. That gives us a map of 85. And in this case, the patient's heart rate is 60. 60 divided by 85, that gives us a modified shock index of 0.71. We said if it's less than 0.7, that is a good indication of clinical badness, okay? So this patient, while they are on the low end of normal, those vital signs could be perfectly normal for anybody who's in relatively good uh, health. But if we apply the same vital signs um, as in our first example with the shock index, a systolic blood pressure of 100 over a diastolic blood pressure of 70 with a MAP of 85, but now we give our patient a heart rate of 115, Okay, this will give us a modified shock index of 1.35. So again, Greater than 1.3, we have a significantly increased risk of long-term mortality and need for massive transfusion protocol. So if you were to just simply look at this heart rate, blood pressure, and MAP, you might say this patient's doing okay, and you may not necessarily resuscitate that patient quite as aggressively. But if you perform this simple calculation and you determine your patient's shock index or their modified shock index, you will see that this patient is actually at a statistically higher risk for clinical badness down the road. Now, like I said, the modified shock index has been shown statistically more accurate at predicting patients requiring massive transfusion protocol in the emergency department. Um, But there are a number of studies out there that have also shown these two formulas uh, equal in sensitivity. Basically, my conclusion from looking at this is pre-hospital emergency care has evolved since the days of three lead EKGs and calling for orders for oxygen and waiting until we place the patient in the ED to activate the cath team. 
More and more pre-hospital resuscitationists are being asked to use a combination of technology like point-of-care ultrasound and evidence-based medicine and higher education and greater experience to make these life-changing decisions from the field with limited information. It's essential that we develop and incorporate into our clinical practice all available knowledge and tools so that we can make the best decision possible for these trauma patients. And while neither the shock index or the modified shock index are perfect tools for predicting a patient's need for aggressive resuscitation or hospital mortality, I believe either of these tools are good for increasing our index of suspicion and should be added to our proverbial bag of tricks. That's all I have for this episode of the podcast. Please leave your comments over in the show notes. And if you would, head on over to iTunes, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode, and leave me an honest rating and review. It really does help more people find the show, and I do love reading these comments. I hope you enjoy this, and until next time, remember education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Tips from Crypt Podcast. Bye for now.